I'm Toby Haydock, and today I shall be asking the questions hidden in plain sight. Goodness, this is the first that we're a bit self-conscious here. We've got an audience for this one because it's guerrilla podcasting and it's either here or actually in a convention hall, which would be obtrusive. Um, and I'm with a gentleman who's, who's very kindly given his time and in fact got in touch with me to say that he would contribute to this podcast, which is very kind of him. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why on earth he's talking to me about Doctor Who. Well, I, I'm not too sure who I am, and I think what happened was I misdialed, and that's how I got this very strange person. Now, but I'm Simon Fisher-Becker, and I play Dorian Moldovar, the blue black marketeer. And thank you, Simon, because you are enabling me to d- make a dent in the new series, which I've not managed to do particularly, because you're all very busy actors, you see. Uh, and you, uh, your story of Doctor Who is quite remarkable in that you were a one-scene character, Yes. Who, who then was invited back, you yes. come back and you get killed, yes. and you come back again. Which is the wonders of Doctor Who, yes. I mean, I'm a Doctor Who fan, so when I first got the part, I was very excited. Uh, and it was one scene with Alex Kingston, so I was even more excited, so I was very happy with that. Uh, and then when I was asked back to do um, uh, uh, The Good Man Goes to War... Mm. The first scene, I had about six lines. Good Man Goes to War, I had 66 lines. <laughs> and I lost my head. Yes. And then I thought that was it. And then within a month, I got another call to say, we want you back, but we only want a part of you. When you arrived for that job the first time, I mean, how much of an idea before you go into makeup did you have of what that would entail? Was it a skull cap and the blue makeup? I mean, did they give you much idea beforehand, or were they just say it's going to take a few hours? No, at, at the read through, I knew it was he was going to be bald because it said so in the um, in the, the script that sent me that I had to learn for the casting. You know, large, bald, blue man thinks Sydney Green Street. So I, I knew I would have to lose my hair in some sort of way. And it was Stephen Moffat who asked if I would actually have it shaved rather than wear a skull cap. Because his argument was the skull cap does tend to look like a skull cap. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, yes, no problem at all. The only issue was that once they shaved my head, uh, it was then I discovered that my head actually looked like an ugly fruit. So it still had the same effect as a skull cap. <laughs> but it was great fun. And when you say you're a Doctor Who fan, mm-hmm. now, are you a Doctor Who fan who knows the names of all the Doctors, or are you a Doctor Who fan who knows what story comes before the androids of Tara? I would say I'm a follower of Doctor Who. I do know the Doctors, uh, and, um, and I can tell you which story was uh, with John Pertwee and which story was with Tom Becker to some degree, but I definitely do not go into the minutiae of the third line of the seventh episode. So you like Doctor Who a lot, but you're a balanced human being, is what I'm, you're saying. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Considering the company you're in is rather I'm, rude. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a sci-fi fan, and I was introduced to sci-fi very young through Doctor Who. Because I was born in 61, so when Doctor Who started, I was only two. So I don't really remember the absolute beginning. But I do clearly remember the transition of uh, William Hartnell to Patrick Troughton. And Patrick Troughton is my favourite Doctor. 
But um, uh, and I, my grandparents kept on saying that for weeks and weeks. I kept on asking, "Is that how we die? Is that how we die?" Crumbs. Yes. And uh, is that what happens when we die? And uh, my grandfather said, "If you ask the question again, you'll find out sooner." <laughs> 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 but because the concept of regeneration was is is sort of embedded in our culture now, but then it was just this whole new new thing. And um, when you get a job like uh, what we know it's now, it's a big part who's gone on to be sort of part of the furniture. But as you said, it was six lines originally. What level of auditioning goes into that? And are there also? I'm curious. Are there actors? Because if the if the description is of a certain size and a certain age, are there various people that you go, oh, it's him again? I'm up against it. You know, is, is there a group of you? Yeah, there are two others that, and we and we joke amongst ourselves that we're the three fatties. That um, and and generally, and generally means not always. <laughs> generally, one of us gets the job, and um, two, the the other two were up for it, so had no idea. But um, they don't talk to me now. <laughs> so that's a, and as for preparing for it I was just sent a script he was sort of uh, the afternoon beforehand was faxed over a script which was only six lines long um, and as I say it said uh, the set was a homage to Star Wars so I knew exactly what the setting was going to be like and you know large bald blue man thinks Sydney Green Street so I knew exactly uh, deportment wise what they wanted and I just delivered my lines it's just as simple as that and you had no idea then that they'd taken a shine to you? No. I, whether Stephen Moffat had an idea that he was going to develop Durham or not, I don't know. But what I have learned is that Toby Haynes, who was the director of Patarka, did say to Stephen Moffat, um, Simon knows what he's doing, you should have him back. Very and nice. Both, and both Toby and Stephen Moffat had let me know that, so... Even now, recounting it, I've got a bit of a goose pimple with that. So, and it was sheer nerves I was able to do it. Well, no. and of course, I was sat opposite Alex Kingston, so I had to do well. Yes. Do you know what? I mean? And is she anything like River Song? <laughs> well, uh, physically, her eyes are just extraordinary. They are quite mesmerising, and I constantly just wanted to get my fingers and run them through her hair. I will admit that uh, her hair is quite extraordinary. And for those who, the, who remember Crystal Tips and Alistair, it's mm. exactly that. And you've embraced the, the convention. I first yeah. met you uh, in Chicago, and I have to say one of my great and abiding memories of that is you coming on at the end, and you speak very movingly about Doctor Who fans being a family. There's none of this them and us or anything like that, which somebody that's come into Doctor Who as a fan, I find, I very much appreciate. Um, but then... You did this brilliant thing where you did your speech. Oh, well, I have to, to the whole of America. <laughs> yes, I have to uh, thank Stephen Moffat. I mean, he's the perfect tagline to any convention, is it not? Yeah. And um, I first did it at um, uh, Galley in 2012, and it, it was a big, big hit there. So since then, I said, "Oh well, I have to do that every time." And it is curious at these conventions; people want you to say your lines. Any, in any conversation, if I drop in one of my lines, you get a little round of applause. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's you know, a good trick. You know, and very often, if I don't want to give an answer or I don't know the proper answer, I'll go, spoilers. Uh, and, uh, people, and people start to laugh and they give a little clap. You know, so they like being in on the... Yeah. In on the and, well, Good Man Goes to War was a sort of mid-season finale and it was when you, as you say, you were surprised to come back and... You know, do you leave through the script to go, oh, and then I die? Well, I, well, I did think, oh, that's a shame. 
I will admit, I did think that. But, you know, friends of mine were saying, you know, it's Doctor Who, and um, they're bound to do a backstory because everybody wants to know who's Dorium's, what, what Dorium's debt is. Yes. So that has to come at some point. Um, but, of course, I didn't expect what did come. No. <laughs> I have to admit, I howled with laughter. My neighbours think I'm mad. Because <laughs> you read through the script, and you can only laugh at the script, can't you? First of all, the idea that somebody's talking, it's just a head in a box. That's funny as well. And this, you know, um, tell me, Doctor, how bad are my injuries? I mean, it's just a funny line. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's, then, then, so that shows that, um, that Dorian's quite witty. Yes. As well, and self-deprecating. And also, Matt did a marvellous thing in the, in, the, in the filming of it, in, in that when they start to laugh. He's, his gestures, the way he sort of nods and does his... Uh, which shows that there's something more between Dorium and the Doctor, and that's what the fans have picked up on as well. Yes. And I'm really lucky that my head, upside down in a box, that's the whole idea. <laughs> that's really <funny>. But <laughs> it ends up inside the TARDIS. So to the fans, I'm uh, uh, an honorary companion. Yeah, you, yeah well, that's, yes. if you're going to do a Doctor Who, yeah. do a Doctor Who where you get to come back from the... and you get to do a scene in the TARDIS. Absolutely. If they don't take you to a quarry, there's going to no. be trouble. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they'll probably find Dorium's head in a box. <laughs> it's gone missing, and they'll, they'll uh, end up in a quarry somewhere, and there he is. Well, it's interesting yeah. talking to an actor from the new series, because one of the questions, and it's been kindly pointed out by Johnny Morris, that he has who's watching that he has a drinking game where if I ask a certain question, he has a drink. <laughs> so, so apologies for being repetitive, but so I can twist this on its head appropriately considering who I'm talking to, is that when I talk to the actors who were in Doctor Who in the 60s and 70s, they go, oh, it was much better back then because we got to rehearse. And I, my question is always, because I've asked that on DVD commentaries and somebody put on a forum, but what, what does that change for the viewer? And obviously you're now doing Doctor Who as television is made now, which is not very much time for rehearsal. It's pretty much re- rehearse, record. Yeah, I mean, rehearse is a word in the dictionary. I mean, the only time you get to do it again, inverted commas, is um, if there's been a technical issue. You know, the camera fell off the dolly or a light bulb went bang or, you know, or something, you know, or they'll just say, oh, could we have a, an alternative? But as to actually book out time... I mean, I did One Foot in the Grave, which wasn't too many years ago, and, and then we had a week's rehearsal, actual week, an actual rehearsal week, which you don't get with the telly so much nowadays. Does that mean actors have to be more instinctive then and on the fly if they're, to add any nuance to them? Yes, I, uh, I, because of Doctor Who, I'm now asked to give talks. <laughs> Before Doctor Who, I was just a fat idiot, you know, but, <laughs> But uh, Dorian, thankfully, people think I know what I'm talking about. But uh, one of those say there's, there's um, craft and skill. Craft is what you build. That's, uh, and, and that's your skill is accessing it quickly. And you really... Sometimes you do fall on uh, stereotype because you haven't got the time to actually sort of think sometimes. But access your craft quickly, therefore build an extensive craft so that your brain can get to it quickly. Because there isn't the time. I did an episode of Doctors with uh, Christopher Timothy, and the only rehearsal time was walking from the green room to the set. And we were going through the lines, and, that, and that, that's it. It's a very difficult, and some actors can't do that. But it's because they fear. But I've passed, I've passed the barrier of feeling stupid. <laughs> and once you pass that barrier, you can you can get on with it. It is, but it's part of the challenge. Yeah, 
And what sort of actor is, is Matt Smith? Is he the sort of actor that gives... Because there are, seems to me two distinct types of stars, those that uh, are bang on in exactly the same every time, and then there are those that, that, that mix it up and so give the editor and the director something to play with afterwards. Um, a, a, a bit of both, really. I mean, firstly, the sheer amount of words he has to get into a minute is quite remarkable, and the energy he puts into it. And he does get a bit tongue-tied, which is understandable sometimes. Uh, but um, working with him, he's a very generous actor. He's very considerate for the other person. I mean, he'll, he'll stay behind to do the reverse, for example, unless something else is happening, you know. Whereas a lot of lead actors probably wouldn't do that. But, um, no, he, he's come to the set, learnt his lines, and apart from which we all get the tongue-tied or get a bit confused, because sometimes lines are very similar and then your brain starts playing tricks with you. Mm. you know, but, um, no, it's great fun. And, and, and he's got a twinkle in his eye. So the, the camera's on you, he's got this twinkle in his eye, so you're trying to be terribly serious. <laughs> and really what you want to do is burst out laughing. And we know that Cardiff is quite a... Because uh, Doctor Who is a big phenomenon. C- Cardiff is quite a tight ship. So when you get scripts where you're the person that's uttering the final lines, which are Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doctor Who, is, is, is there an unspoken rule? Or is there a very heavily embargo? You know, you can't tell anybody about this. And, and, and how do you prevent yourself from, from telling anybody the exciting things that are coming up? If there is a clause in the contract, I haven't seen it. Um, but uh, I think it's a written rule, really, that you keep... And after all, you don't want to give too much away. But it is very difficult, because you've got people on constantly asking, are you going to be back? You know, things like that. And so do you tell a lie or do you not tell a lie? I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, are you coming back? I say, I say, I don't know. And then I fell into a trap. I can give you an example. I was being interviewed like you are, and somebody said, oh, uh, who are the other actors you've met? Blah, 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 blah. And this is just after I did um, uh, Good Man Goes to War. So I was going through the list, and then I mentioned Mark Gatiss. You see, and there was his pause. He says, but Mark Gatiss doesn't come back until episode 13. <laughs> and I thought... So, so you know, Simon Becker, Simon Fisher Becker says that Mark Gatiss is coming back. You know, so I think there is an understanding that you can slip, but I suppose it's a lot easier just to say stay stum. Yes. Well, uh, we, we, you know, we talk about you in Doctor Who, but um, you've been an actor. Uh, for a long time. Well, 25 years. So tell us about the Simon Fisher-Becker that, t- that, that got to Doctor Who. What, me- what inspired you to act and, and what were your sort of early days and breaks? Well, it's very difficult, really, because life is very strange because at school we were taught, you know, you must have your five-year plans and plan it all out and you were going to retire when you're 60. But then life comes along and goes, nah, nah, doesn't it? So um, at school I was going to be a biology music teacher. That was... That's it. I did uh, the school plays and the school musicals, so that got me the bug. And I always fancied the idea of being a professional actor, but never really thought I could make it. Um, and I took a gap year before going to university, was my plan. And I worked for a while in the civil service, but then the civil service offered to pay for my degree. But um, they wouldn't pay for the degree that I wanted to do, because they thought anything arty-farty 
it's not a proper degree. So I had to do business administration, which I did, so that was fine. But then the deal was that once I'd done my degree, uh, that I would stay with the civil service for five years. But by that time, they wanted to get rid of civil servants, so they paid me money to leave. Marvellous. Marvellous. And today it's called redundancy, but then they called it something else. And so I, so I then was thinking, and I didn't have to leave, and I lived with my grandparents. And so I had this discussion. I said, oh, do I leave? Don't I leave? So there's my grandmother was going, oh, it's a job for life, you know, and your pension and security. And there was my grandfather who was saying, well, don't get to the age of 80 and say, I wish. So I, the compromise was, I said, well, I'll go for three auditions. And if no drama college takes me, then I'll stay in the civil service. Well, two, fortunately, offered me a place. And I went to the Oxford Drama Studio. Yeah. And Denham Elliott was the patron, and he took a bit of a shine to me. And it was very, very helpful. And, um, and that's it, really. But he did say to me that people wouldn't take me seriously until I was about 40. So as a result, I just took whatever came, whatever was offered. So, so I now have a broad uh, CV, which is very good. But when I started out, the thinking was, oh, no, darling, you have to specialise. Well, those specialists are, no, are not working anymore. You need to be flexible. And there are all sorts of ways of using your skill, not just acting as people who imagine on a stage and speaking forth in thunderous tones. You can use it in all sorts of ways. So I do a lot of teaching using my voice and things like that. So that's how it all started, really. And one thing does lead on to another. And do you have, do you have a favourite medium to act in? Uh, I must admit, I do enjoy audio. Working for Big Finish, I've really enjoyed. Uh, being in a, in a recording studio, I love. But I started on the stage, so stage is my first love, as they say. But above all, I, like any one of us here, you just love working. And I will admit, there is a degree of showing off. And every, so everyone here I is thought I'd put that in before somebody else <laughs> slaps me in the face. But every, there is. Everyone here is being very sweet because lunch has now come in. Yes. And so, so has Dan Starkey. Hello, yes. hello, hello, Commander Dan. Strax. Um, <laughs> so I'm feeling very guilty for um, um, everybody sitting here being quiet and not eating sandwiches. So I'm going to ask you, Simon, uh, as well as saying thank you for your time, to nominate a charity which the listeners must, if they so desire, donate to. Uh, there are two uh, um, very close uh, friends of mine uh, suffer from Parkinson's, so there's the Parkinson Society, and there's a local charity where I live. I live in Croydon in South London, um, uh, St Christopher's Hospice, both of which you can find on the internet. And the final question is, Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, uh, and people are listening to these podcasts, uh, I, I think six or seven people do. In fact, they're all in the room now. I may as well not put this one on the internet. Uh, and so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there? Uh, well, it's all still waiting for you. There's the Fields of Trenzalore, the Fall of the Eleventh, and the question. The first question, hidden in plain sight. Doctor. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Yes! I've done about 30 of these podcasts. That was my favourite moment so far. <laughs> Simon Fisher Becker, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a hoot. And thanks to everybody for their patience. Bless you. Great. Thank you, Simon. That's all right. Thank you, everybody. I hope that comes out. That's great. That's great. 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 I've got that. Great.
Simon's charities are Parkinson's Society, www.parkinsons.org.uk, and St. Christopher's Hospice, www.stchristophers.org.uk. And I mentioned Compaid before, a charity without whom the convention that I was at would not have taken place, so please consider them as well, www.compaid.org.uk. Uh, I interviewed a couple more uh, new series monsters at the convention, but will, for the sake of variety, likely break them up. So maybe next time I'm not committing myself, the order can be changed without notice. Uh, how shall I plug the next one? I'll tell you what, I'm going to do nothing, because it is done. <laughs> so that's next time. Probably. Possibly. I'm not committing myself on who's round. Uh, you know, usual podcast at bigfinish.com feedback. Uh, www.tobyhado.com to look at my face and words. Bye for now. You know what's going on here, don't you? That's why my mom told me to expect you there. Today at the Hotel Delphine. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Florida. Summer 2012. I don't like America very much these days. The last time I stood on its soil, I swore I would never return, but here I am, again. I find myself back in the Florida Everglades, a hot, sweaty place full of things that frankly want to eat you. Insects, alligators, you name it. Of course, I wouldn't be here at all if it hadn't been for the letter she sent. A letter, not an email, text, tweet, or message on Facebook, but an actual ink-on-paper letter. Quaint, but telling, I thought, because it suggested it was from someone who knew me, or knew what I preferred in life. But then, that's Kayla Grant for you. Wiser than her 25 years would suggest. The smartest cookie. Like her mother. The Confessions of Dorian Gray is brought to you by BigFinish.com.